So last week we started to look at the passage of uh, Jeremiah 29 with a a view toward uh, a vision for the church and a vision for the city. That we, uh, as, as a people, as followers of Christ, would have this view, this vision for the church and this vision for the city that is, um, that is full. Because I think for all of us, uh, pastors, elders, leaders in the church, and uh, everyone else who lives and serves in the church and, and those outside of the church, we're prone to have this truncated view of what the church should be and ultimately of what the church, uh, the churches and our individual impact on the city where we uh, live in might be, the culture around us. Uh, uh, writer Dave, James Davidson Hunter has written uh, a, a, an interesting book called um, To Change the World. came out... Uh, back in 2010 and he's wrestling with this this uh, significant question of uh, all right the church has throughout its history had this vision for changing the world and yet especially in recent decades it seems that christian influence in western culture is is diminishing and it's it's not just a few churches that have this view and the problem is that, not, that more churches need to have it, but he, he says that every church, essentially, almost every church around has some kind of vision for impacting the culture around them. Now, how, uh, how they go about doing that, where they put their, their hopes and their dreams, where they, 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 you know, what baskets they put their eggs in, it can be radically different. But all of us as Christians understand that Christ didn't come in just to uh, rescue some people out of the world in some kind of lifeboat theology, and the rest of it is just going to hell in a handbasket. It's a a short-sighted view of, of, uh, of who God is and the impact that his gospel can have. And yet, on the other hand, when we do try to change the world, when we try to have an impact, we oftentimes come up against these these roadblocks and these hurdles and these disappointments, and and we're tempted to to respond uh, with despair and say, well, I tried. I'm I'm fine just to do the rest of the things. Other people can can take that on. And And yet, somehow, somehow, we see scripture over and over again. God throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, during the time of uh, the patriarchs and during the time of the wilderness wandering, even in times of uh, the the theocracy uh, of Israel, in times of exile, and even in the New Testament, this care for the people of the cities where where the people aren't worshiping God. These cities that are characterized uh, by worship to completely other gods, oftentimes depicted by idols and physical structures or statues built, even statues to kings who claim to be deities. That's true that in some places you see God bringing judgment on a whole city. 
The book of Jonah is God proclaiming judgment on the city of Nineveh. But there, ultimately, the people turn their hearts and repent, and the, the judgment is stayed. But in other cases, we'll look at in this sermon series that we're going to start, you see the city like Sodom, where their sin had reached to such a level that God destroys the whole city. But there's this fascinating story in that of Abraham going and interceding to God, not even living in the city, but Abraham going interceding to God on behalf of the city and saying, God, what if there are just 50 righteous people left in the city? Will you not destroy it? It's it's this crazy account of Abraham negotiating with God. Well, what about 40? Well, what about 30? Well, what about five? about five and God says if there are five people left there they won't destroy it the destruction that God brings on cities is when evil reaches such a level when there are so few people following God anymore we should be careful when we pray for destruction But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for God's judgment. There are multiple troubling psalms. They're called imprecatory psalms. How's that for a word for you? Where the psalmist prays for the destruction of other people in in startling ways. And we're tempted to write off those sections of Scripture and say, well, that's an old thing. But but what's happening in those places is, is... the author's desire to have God's heart and to see both justice and mercy exercised at the same time. Sometimes it's not expressed explicitly in, bo- in, in every place. Sometimes we see mercy seems to win the day and sometimes we see justice seems to win the day. But I want to propose to you the thesis of this sermon is that to change the world and to change the city, we have to focus on the place where justice and mercy can meet together. And it's only found in the redemptive story of Scripture that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. It can't be a truncated view. It can't be just this presentation of the gospel in terms of a four spiritual laws or a bridge illustration or the Romans road. Some of you are familiar with these presentations of the gospel. The only way to understand how God's justice and mercy meet and change a culture and change a world is to see how the full story of God's redemption in all of these pages, it's a long book, Engage the very real and practical problems in the world. Problems like not one, but multiple patriarchs going into a city, being fearful of the city and lying to the leaders of the city and telling them their wife is their sister in order to protect their own hide. And that is messed up. It is just messed up stuff. And yet, in the midst of all this messed up stuff, God is using this family to bring his Savior into the world and at the same time, saving these messed up families. 
and bringing redemption not just to those families, the immediate family, but to the households that are part of them, their workers, their, their, uh, their, 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 their distant relatives, and even other people who live around them, and even some of the people that they lie to, come to see that God is bigger than the lies of these people. And at the same time, God is using these people in a merciful way to bring his salvation and to bring his truth and to bring his good laws to a culture that instinctively rejects the laws. It says, these are oppressive. I don't, I don't want to follow these. It's nothing that's unfamiliar to us. I mean, we come to some of God's laws and we say, we don't want to follow these. Our heart takes us someplace else. Our desires are for something else. And time and time again, God brings his people back, us back, to see how those paths that we follow that are our own ways lead to worse off situations. But he doesn't just condemn us in that. He leads us back and points us to his mercy and his grace that renews us and refreshes us and equips us to enter into the places that we live. And this isn't just the city that's outside of us. It's oftentimes our our very close relationships in our extended family, even immediate family. Our very close relationships, even in the church itself where oftentimes our selfish desires take over, where oftentimes we long for something so much that we can't see what other people need. Oftentimes our patience draws short. And we want what we want. And it's so easy to lose sight of what God wants for us. I want to present today a vision for the city. A vision more specifically, not just for the city, but for how we very practically can engage in the city to make a significant difference. But we can't go there if we think that we're going there on our own strength or that we can change the world apart from God and his work. Last week, we looked at what it was to be a true church, and we said that a church needs to still resemble a church. The temptation all around us is that uh, the church becomes something of a social club, looking more like a coffee shop at times than having the marks of the church, namely that God's word is preached in church and is, is held to as the centerpiece, that that the church is engaged in prayer, believing that God is at work and he is the one who does these things and he answers prayers and he chooses to use prayer. We looked at the significance of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and how we can't have a wrong view of that and operate as a healthy church. We can't neglect it, nor can we look to those things to do things that they can't do. Some of you have come to me with questions about baptism the past week, and I don't want to revisit that subject here, but, but, but know that uh, um, 
know that the legitimacy of baptism is not uh, tied to many of the things that we're tempted to think that it's tied to. We looked at how the church oftentimes needs to exercise discipline in a healthy way. Again, that is something that is oftentimes abused. And then we looked at how the church also needs to be a place that is characterized by mercy. And if any of these things exist and are done without mercy, then it's a church that's lost its heart. Not just its own heart, but it's lost its heart that is connected ultimately with the mercy that Jesus has offered to its church and that we cannot extend if we don't have experience of it personally. But a church that only looks inward, that's only focused on those things and, and, and itself, ultimately becomes an unhealthy church. Sometimes the question is asked me, well, well, what comes first? Do we need to care for the church and the church's needs, or do we need to care for the city's needs? And the answer to that is not a simple answer on the one hand, because you can't parse those things out and just say, well, this much or this percentage of this, or we need to raise a certain point before we can do other things. The answer to that is always a much more complex both and. That if we aren't engaged outside of ourselves, then we ultimately are a cancerous church that will die. And yet at the same time, if we are so focused on things outside of ourselves that we never tend to the needs in the church and never tend to the significance of the preaching of the word and the the, the centralness of, of God's salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ, then we simply become an organization that's trying to change the world apart from God. To create a culture that exists apart from God but that sometimes wants to give a God a place in the temple, a podium to sit on among many other gods. But the God who has made heaven and earth can't sit in that place. It's impossible for him to sit in that place, not only because it's not where he belongs, and certainly not because he has some type of pride but because he speaks truth. And if he is the God who made all these things, and if he is, as he claims, the only God, then for him to sit by idly while people go and worship other idols is ultimately not a loving or merciful thing. And so God desires first in the city to be the, the city to be a place where he is worshiped. In his fullness, fully understood. I wouldn't want to worship the God that is presented oftentimes in popular media. It is no God that is worthy of worship. Who is the God that is worthy of worship and what does he want us to do? And these are our three points today. And here are the three points. First, God is a God who loves to show mercy and who has called his people to be people who show mercy. If you're following along in the discussion questions, 
This is really all under question number four because these questions are the same questions from last week covering both sermons. Also a little bit number two. First, God is the God who shows mercy and has called us to show mercy. The second thing, God is a God who promotes, pursues, and always execute justice, executes justice fairly. He's a God who promotes and executes justice fairly, and he's called his people in so much as they've been in positions to do this, to do the same. Third, God is a God who has created all of the things in this world with a beauty and has called us to be a people who are cultivating that type of beauty as image bearers of our creator who has made us as human beings to be the pinnacle of the beauty of his creation. If we understand who God is and how he engages the culture and the city around us in these three topics, one who shows mercy, who promotes and pursues justice, who cultivates beauty, and we find ourselves in this story and with different gifts in different areas, then we will be a, God, a, a church that is truly loving and serving the city in which we've been put. This is the, the passage that is really the focus of our sermon today. If you're looking on the insert or in a, in a Bible, we're in Jeremiah chapter 29. Again, this letter is to the descendants of Abraham the people of Israel who have been overrun by the nation, the superpower of Babylon after living in Jerusalem for hundreds of years. God took away his hedge of protection. They conquered. The way that they conquered was to take their leaders and the influential people back to their capital city, Babylon, so that they could inculcate them and indoctrinate them in their way of life and slowly turn them to serve the Babylonian king and ultimately the Babylonian gods. False prophets are telling the people, don't get too comfortable. God's going to come and take us back any day now. But Jeremiah the prophet has been thrown in jail multiple times because he has the true word from the Lord and is telling them, you're going to be there for 70 years. 70 years, a lifetime for the people who were young when they made that move. But Jeremiah, writing from Jerusalem, writes these words of comfort that are not his words, but that are God's words. And here's what he says. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, 
the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I'll highlight again this week what I did last week. This isn't just a moving party in a new city with some adventurous new things to explore with people who may be slightly hostile to them, but ultimately aren't that bad. This is an army, a conquering people who has decimated their city, killed hundreds and thousands of their loved ones, brought them to this foreign land against their will. And now God is writing this letter to them, asking them to seek the welfare of the city in which God has placed them. I can only begin to imagine the difficulty of this instruction. I don't think we can move past that too quickly and compare it to our own setting now where oftentimes we're found uh, in place, we find ourselves in places where uh, our co-workers are hostile to the Christian faith. Oftentimes our own family members are hostile to the Christian faith. We should not read ourselves into the biblical narrative in ways that are not true because we cannot completely identify with these situations. And yet, and yet, out of these, if we understand the situation rightly, we can glean understanding for how God calls us to live in this place in this time. God calls us to settle down in many places. But at other times, he calls us to pick up and move and go. It's not an easy answer for most people when to move and when to stay. It's not the same answer. If you feel an itch to go, sometimes that itch is because you're in a bad situation and you just want to get out of it. And sometimes, like Joseph when he was uh, tempted and uh, pursued by Potiphar's wife, the right answer is to get out of it. And other times, the answer is to stay there and go through the difficulty of that situation. And it is painful, and it depends an awful lot on God's strength and not our own. And the support of others around us. To know that is a question of wisdom, which is not a topic of this sermon today, nor should we say that the answer always is just to settle down. Sometimes we need to move, and sometimes we need to stay. But I want to say consistently, consistently throughout Scripture, 
until a city reaches a certain point or a culture reaches a certain point, we see God's mercy extended to that place through the people that he has called to be in that place. And not simply by their faithful presence or silent presence or faithfulness at work, but oftentimes through their words as well. For how can the people know, the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Romans, unless they have a preacher to tell them? How has God chosen to make himself known but through his word and through his ministers? The priests, the prophets in the Old Testament, his pastors and ministers in the New Testament. And by the way, Not all of us are called to be ordained pastors, but all of us are called to be ministers, which simply means servants in God's kingdom. And to be prepared with an answer for the reason that we have this hope. Now, many of us find ourselves probably like the people in Babylon in places where we don't have that hope, where we don't feel that hope, and we have questions ourselves. It's difficult to live in a difficult situation when we are doubting things and questioning things ourselves. But I want us to look at the type of people God gave these instructions to and see ourselves a little bit in them. The whole reason that they were in Babylon was because they had rejected God and his promises. They had made in this protected, God-protected city of Jerusalem and country of Judah and Israel, they had made these places to be the exact opposite of what God is constantly calling his people to be. Where they were called to show mercy, they were showing no mercy. The prophet Isaiah is called to name one of his sons along these lines. Where they were called to promote and pursue justice and create fair systems, they used false scales to abuse the poor, to create favorites in society. Where they were called to cultivate beauty and to develop beautiful things, they ended up worshiping the beautiful things that God had given them, the temple and other structures, instead of letting those things remind them of the beauty of God and the beauty that he has made us to be in as his creative creatures. And they exchanged in that a truth, the truth of God for a lie. See that even with the disciples are tempted to worship the beauty of the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus tells them that that's not the temple. The temple of God is a place where God lives. The temple of God is Jesus. And all those who are united with Christ through belief and through his calling are the beauty of God's creation. The beauty of that temple. The temple was meant to point us to Christ and to point us to a better picture of the beautiful bride. The picture that Isaiah also gives and we find again in the New Testament of what the church is to be. And it's not just Jesus who should see that bride as beautiful, but the city and the culture looking in around us should recognize the church and say it's beautiful. When we're tempted to say, well, we need to become more like the city in order to become beautiful, 
we always need to be reminded that that beauty, and we see it so often, that beauty is always short-lived. The beauty is the type of beauty that promotes beauty products to make yourself look younger, but that can only last so long. Where true beauty is a lasting beauty that is characterized by the character of a person, by the fruit of the Spirit that is uh, exercised in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, goodness. To cultivate beauty is to promote the arts around us, painting and, and visual arts, to create things that uh, look nice, to, to create a worship environment that's not distracting by its ugliness, but that ultimately doesn't worship the beauty of it. We're still working on that, by the way. <laughs> we should, as a church, engage and cultivate those things, the arts and the music, various forms of music. Encourage those things, foster those things. I'd like to see us as a church create some type of organization that is charged with the cultivation of beauty. What we can see in a way that mirrors the cultivation of beauty in our understanding of Christ, in our exercising of that in relationship to Him and to others that should always be fed by an understanding of who Jesus is through the preaching of his word and our study in various forms. And more than our study, our engagement, our active engagement with him as we pray. I was struck by this verse just as I was studying the second week of that instruction in verse 7, not just seek the welfare of the city where I sent you, but to pray to the Lord on his behalf. To understand that we can only do so much. It is God who ultimately changes hearts and minds in the city. Going backwards again in, our, or in, our, in that list I gave you earlier of show mercy, promote justice, cultivate beauty. Let's talk a little bit about promoting justice. I think this one is probably the most difficult to understand our role as Christians in our current context. Part of that comes from a culture that has seen our, or a generation that has seen our culture move away from many, um, many policies and laws that are based on biblical principles. And so we long to go back to this system that was there before that was oftentimes largely based on biblical ideals. Others of us and still see that time and we understand that even with those laws, there were massive injustices done with laws that were largely based on the Bible's laws. And part of the problem is that those Bibles may have been based on them, but they weren't entirely consistent with the Bible's laws. The injustices that were uh, just uh, horrendously done 
even as late, recent as the 1960s, and we still see this done around Jim Crow laws, unwritten laws, oftentimes practices in cultures that were, uh, were characterized by racism, by sexism, by ageism, abuse of various people not in power, unfair employment laws, should be a sobering wake-up call to say that we can't just go back to the 1950s and find our answer in some type of system that was here in America. To promote justice is to actively promote it for all people and oftentimes willing, being willing to give up some of our own preferences, not God's commands, but our own preferences, even some of our own privileges that we've, uh, we've enjoyed in various ways from family and culture. And to truly enter into a place that is promoting justice for all in a sacrificial way. Oftentimes the church in that era before was guilty of sins of omission more than they were of sins of commission. For when we see injustice in a place and we say, well, it's not time to deal with that yet. Somebody else will deal with that. And we do nothing. We are guilty of fostering a system that is ultimately against God and the church. It is against his kingdom expansion. And by kingdom, we need to think of a good kingdom that is ruled by a good king, and namely, that is Jesus Christ. To do this in a modern culture requires wisdom and understanding where we need to vote, where we need to become socially active, where we need to be simply present, where we need to be engaged in prayer, where we need to take our family and friends along, where we need to engage in difficult conversations with others that we love that are going to be awkward, but that bring issues to the surface so that we can deal with them, where we should run for political office, where we should voice support in politics. Oftentimes in recent years, the answer that the church and many in our circles have given is to disengage from politics entirely and say the church isn't called to be a political body. And when I say that, I am not supporting one political party. And I think there are, and I, I will say emphatically that there are problems in each political party and how we engage in politics is a question, another matter of wisdom. But to withdraw from it ultimately is to not pursue justice for the city. Third area is that we should be people who show mercy because God is one who shows mercy. And this oftentimes is lumped together in mercy and justice ministries or justice and mercy ministries. And I think we need to see these as two separate things. Because when we lump them together, we don't hold in, in distinction what needs to be held in distinction in order for the gospel to shine through in the midst of all of these things. 
To show mercy is in to enter into difficult situations where people have wronged us or wronged others and show love and compassion to them in a way that they do not deserve. To show mercy is also to enter into difficult situations where people have been subject to different abuses and even systems and even at times at their own fault found themselves in difficult situations where children are in underperforming schools and we can enter in to come alongside them and help parents to tutor and to mentor them. Never trying to replace the parents is as oftentimes done in these situations to think the parent has failed and so we need to come in and be the Jesus for this person. To show mercy is to promote a healthy, flourishing and peace and shalom of all of society in a way that doesn't promote ourselves and our goodness in contrast with others. Oftentimes the church has been guilty of this too, creating secondary agencies and organizations that compete with others in the city who oftentimes have the same shared goal of seeing people brought out of systems of poverty and yet war against each other. But when we partner with others who have the same goal, we see opportunities not only to seek the peace and prosperity of the city, but for the gospel to enter into other people's lives through one-on-one -on -one relationships. And that, by the way, that, by the way, especially in the era that we live in, is the way people hear and see and understand the gospel. I hear very few people today who go to a large crusade and that's the first place that they ever hear the gospel and come to believe. Sometimes those large crusades can be a culminating point where relationships and understanding come to a pinnacle and a, and a crisis of belief and a turning of belief. But so often our friends and neighbors will hear the gospel and believe through personal relationship and interaction that's where people see that you're not trying to be perfect. Excuse me, you're not trying to show yourself as being perfect. We are pursuing goodness and perfection, but we don't try to show ourselves as something we aren't. Where we are trying and engaged in love of others around us. And where there is an active speaking of truth, a willingness to enter into the conversation, why do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Sometimes people will ask that question. Sometimes we have to give invitations. One of the things I learned early on in church planning is that when I tell people what I do for a living, about half of them will want to talk about it and half of them will want to go on to something else. I always will just say, I'm a pastor, and see what they say. If they respond with a question of what that means, what it is, I'm glad to talk about it. I've given them the opportunity. If they go on to some other topic, I know they're not ready to talk about it. All kinds of places where we can throw those things into a conversation with other people. And when they see us as people who show mercy and promote justice and cultivate beauty, it gives them a fuller picture of the God that we worship and that we are ultimately inviting them to worship as well. With the hope of the city being transformed oftentimes by these personal one-on-one -on -one relationships with others. That is more than just being present. 
It's speaking the words. That is more than just being a good person. It's being willing to be a jerk when other people need us to pursue justice for them. Be a jerk in a kind way. That's a tricky one. It is more than just coming to church and reading your Bible. It is cultivating beauty and showing mercy, the kind of mercy that you've experienced. Jesus challenged his disciples with a parable about those who had received a lot, those who had been forgiven for their debt a lot. And he said from this parable, those who have been forgiven much are the ones who can forgive much. When we truly understand who we are in relationship to God, that we've fallen, that we are sinful, that in and of ourselves we are not good, that in and of ourselves we would run from God as fast as we can because of our shame and our guilt. But we see how God has shown us mercy. And when we see the bigger we understand ourselves to be in that place of fleeing from God, the more we understand God's mercy. And the more we understand God's mercy, the more we can do all these things to seek the prosperity and the flourishing of the city around us. We can show mercy, promote justice, and cultivate beauty. And ultimately worship God. Let's pray. Our Father, would you give us a heart for this city? As Jesus looked out on the crowds and had compassion on them, will you give us hearts of compassion to look out on this city and long for its renewal and restoration? Will you give us strength to endure sacrificially suffering in various forms on behalf of others around us and even on behalf of this great city? Father, would you remind us of the power that Jesus has shown in conquering sin and death by his death and resurrection. And remind us of the care that he has for his people because he reigns over us as our good king. Help us to come after him, to follow him, and to serve him. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the musicians are getting ready there. Let me say one more thing that uh, wasn't in my sermon, and I've been trying to figure out how to, uh, to present this. We've talked about it in the, some of the vision meetings we've had. Um, one model that I've seen in other churches is to create an organization that kind of alongside the church or sometimes within the church that cultivates uh, service in the city. Uh, some places they call it hope for San Diego, hope for New York. I think that we need to go in this direction as a church and create some type of organization that's called Serve San Diego or Love San Diego or Cultivate San Diego that is really pursuing these three areas especially. Probably at some point in our growth we even separate these out and pursue them realizing they are separate but I want to just plant this seed in people's mind and, and, and start to think about 
how we can create that type of thing. That, 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 uh, that the organization has relationships with other groups in the city and other ministries and can help connect individuals and groups to these things in the city. And, uh, and, and also as a church, figure out where are the places that we can, we can create things. Where there are gaps in the city right now, and, and we can create organizations that, that come in and, and fill and meet these needs in, in, all, in these three areas especially. So um, if you have thoughts, let me know. Come to the vision meetings, and I'd uh, love to, to talk more about that.